Bibles, and we're going to be in Jonah chapter number four tonight. Jonah chapter number four. And if you want to, while you're turning, stick a finger in the book of Exodus, um, chapter number 34, if my memory serves me correctly. Jonah chapter four, and then uh, just for a moment, in a few minutes, we'll jump over to Exodus chapter number 34, but we're going to begin tonight. We're going to really wrap up the book of Jonah. And this short but action-packed book um, is, I I believe, one of the most applicable, one of the most relevant books to the day and age that we live in. Um, I think it's fascinating just how the scripture unfolds this story and how weighty it is for us today. And yet, even with all these things being said, in my Bible, the book of Jonah occupies about that much space. Uh, Right in the middle of the Bible, two pages, and that's all there is to it. But there's so many things taking place here. Um, It's just, we'll recap here in a moment for those of you who may have missed on the first couple pieces of this book. But it's just so many things that are taking place. As we come into Jonah chapter number four, I really want to hone in on what the scripture says, how the scripture informs us, because uh, sincerely, Jonah chapter 4 is not um, what we might call um, an easy chapter. Jonah chapter 4 actually deals with some very serious themes and some very serious issues that Jonah is facing. And so as we come into this, just kind of by way of introduction, um, I like to start off kind of asking a question, saying, okay, how can we, can we relate to, how can we come together, how can we be informed on a specific topic or a specific idea? Just any time that I speak, communicate, I want to try to build that bridge. So I'm going to start off, start off with a question. You guys ready for a question? Is awake enough? All right. How many of you have an enemy? Wow, way more. wow, goodness, man! You know, yeah, as you as you ask that, everyone, ah, and then like six people that are like, "I get it, I get it." Uh, we're we're going to talk through some of those things. Legitimately, uh, there are there are there are people maybe that could be considered an enemy. Um, as Christians, we uh, have spiritual warfare. So obviously, uh, when it comes to spiritually, we could say, yes, we have an enemy. Um, But especially when we're speaking of human beings, other people, uh, today I want to press into and I want to see what it looks like when God loves your enemies. When God loves your enemies. And so here, as we jump into uh, Jonah chapter 4, we're really coming to this fascinating piece. Um, And as we step into this chapter, I want you to think about how we interact and how we view other people. Um, Because some people, can we just admit this, some people are hard to be at peace with. Um, How many of you guys have ever known a difficult person? You don't have to name names, you don't have to point fingers, okay. How many of you have ever been a difficult person? All right, yeah, maybe, okay, okay, a few of us, all right. Um, But we have people that make us uncomfortable. Maybe they intimidate us, maybe they frustrate us. Um, maybe it's been dependent on their personality, maybe it's an age difference, maybe it's a cultural difference, maybe it's a language difference, maybe it's going to be a number of different things, a number of different reasons, uh, but what we find is that here, the book of Jonah, Jonah's confronted with this idea and with this concept. And so throughout this book, what we really find is we find a theme. We find man's sinfulness being confronted by God's holiness. And even starting in Jonah chapter number 
1, we see all of these things begin to play out. Because we find, at the very beginning, we find God coming to Jonah, right? And God says to Jonah, go against Nineveh, go cry against this great city. And so Jonah um, gets up and he goes the opposite direction. Uh, he said go about 500 miles east, and he goes about 25, or tried to get, tries to go about 2,500 miles west. God says, do this. Jonah says, I'll do that. And so as he's en route, what happens? We know the story. Many of us, most of us, have an idea of the story. He goes the opposite direction, gets in a boat. And then what happens as soon as he gets in this boat? He goes to sleep, and God sends this great storm. This great storm comes, and uh, the boat even desires, it wants to break apart, as the storyteller gives us. The ship is just ready to come apart at the seams. And so Jonah, sleeping in the bottom, is confronted by one of these sailors, the captain of the ship. And he says, Jonah, pray to your God. And Jonah, so Jonah prays to his God, right? No. No, because that's what a godly person would do. <laughs> no. He doesn't want any of that. Instead, he gets up and he says, I serve Yahweh, the God who made the land, the dry land, and the sea. Okay, irony, just a little bit here um, as he's running on the sea from God. Okay, and so he gets, oh man, he's just doing all these things, and then he tells the mariners, you know what you have to do? You have to throw me overboard. You have to throw me overboard. Did God tell Jonah to be thrown overboard, or was this kind of a Jonah-ism? But whatever, the mariners, what do they do? They say, we don't want this on our hands. God, please don't hold us to account here. We're just trying to, we're just doing what we're told, okay? And they throw Jonah overboard. And then what do we see? God prepared a great fish. This great fish comes, the great fish swallows Jonah, as we know, and he goes and he spits him back out, uh, probably somewhere near where he started. So he has in front of him about a 500-mile journey to Nineveh still. And so for these weeks, he is thinking about how he can wax eloquent for the city of Nineveh, correct? He's thinking about how he can explain uh, their wickedness and how Yahweh has come and Yahweh has declared his righteousness before them and how they should repent and turn from their wicked ways. And so he gets to Nineveh and he delivers this long, eloquent sermon in five words. Eight words in our English Bibles, five words in Hebrew. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Detailed. Wow, thanks, Jonah. I mean, who's overthrowing it? Uh, who is this message coming from? Is there a way out of this sad overthrowing? None of this information is given, right? It's just totally lacking by this prophet. And so uh, what happens? In spite of the lackluster effort on Jonah's part, the people of Nineveh actually repent. They said, you know what, maybe, just maybe, God will preserve us. Maybe God will see that we have turned from our wicked ways, and he will turn from the calamity that he's going to bring upon us. Maybe, just maybe, he'll allow this to happen. And so they turn, and they repent. And then we find God's response. You see, here's the amazing thing, and we talked about this some last week, but this is an amazing thing here, is that Jonah's message comes in. He says, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This word overthrown literally means to be turned upside down. And Jonah gets up and he says, 40 days, your city is going to be turned upside down. What Jonah didn't realize was his prophecy would come true, but not in the way he thought it would come true. Because within those 40 days, God took the wicked, uh, heathenistic, selfish, self-focused city of Nineveh 
And he turned it all of a sudden into a city of people repenting from their sin and turning to God. All of a sudden, he took this city, God did, the most wicked city on the face of the planet in its day and age, and turned it upside down, just like Jonah had said. And Jonah, of course, being the good prophet he is, is so excited about the newfound faith of the Ninevites. Can you guys imagine 100,000 plus people to disciple in the truths of Yahweh, to be able to lead into the Lord, the most influential city on the planet has now turned to God. How amazing is this, right? Remember, this, this book subverts our expectations. You have the prophet of God who runs and is wicked and is disobedient, and you have the wicked Ninevites who turn and repent at the slightest threat of God's justice, right? And so we've come to Jonah in chapter number four. And this, is, this, this chapter really presses into Jonah. But as we walk through this book, it's fine to be hard on Jonah, but we have to remember that this book, while it's about Jonah, is written to us. And this, the point, the purpose of this book is that as we look at Jonah, we lift him up for ridicule, we say, Jonah, what a moron you can be. At the same time, there's a mirror looking back at us, and we have to realize, wait, 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 that's me. I'm Jonah. So as we step into this, we're going we're gonna to laugh at the stupidity that Jonah shows. We're going to bemoan his hard-headedness, his wickedness. And we're going to be forced to stop and to look inside and say, I'm Jonah. And so through all of these miracles that God has done, it brings us to chapter number four, verse number one. And really, this tells the story of what's going on inside of Jonah's heart. The whole city of Nineveh has repented. This wicked city, the wickedness God says has gone up before me. He decries in chapter number one. And what does Jonah respond? Verse number one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. What? The greatest revival in his day and age has come to Nineveh. And Jonah, the prophet of God, is like suffering from success here, right? Oh, God, how dare you? Oh, he's so angry that there has been a revival that has come. Why? Because they're his enemies. He doesn't like them. Watch verse number two, though. Watch what happens, because this is, only, this is only the second time that we actually see Jonah praying to God, which is amazing, because over and over and over again, God says to Jonah, God says to Jonah, God says to Jonah, it's almost like God wants Jonah to succeed and be healthy and seek after him more than Jonah wants to. Over and over again, God's coming to Jonah, God's coming to Jonah, God's coming to Jonah, all right? Parents that have had to repeat yourselves, amen, okay? Over and over again, God's saying, Jonah, 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 Jonah. And Jonah's saying, what? Did you say something, God? Here, finally, finally hits a tipping point, and he says, all right, you know what? You sent that whale? Yeah, I had to pray to you. Now you say the city? I've got to come. God? And how does, he, how does he treat God? Look at verse number two. He prayed unto the Lord. And said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? 
Didn't I tell you this would happen? All of a sudden, we have Jonah's motive for the whole story, right? Chapter number one doesn't actually tell us why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. We can assume maybe fear. We can assume maybe uh, too much work. Maybe Tarshish is just a nicer destination if I have to go somewhere. I mean, we can assume so many different things about Jonah's reason for not going to Nineveh. But we come to chapter four and we see it. I knew you would forgive them. Uh, Excuse me? What? Jonah, it's like Jonah is sending God hate mail. That's what's happening here. God, how dare you? (laughs) Watch this. Watch this. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. Watch. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Wait a second. What? Pause for a moment. What's Jonah's complaint? What's Jonah's complaint? God, you are merciful. You're gracious. You are slow to anger, and I hate you for it. What is wrong with Jonah? And in fact, watch this. Go back to, I told you, put a finger in Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. I didn't follow my own advice. Give me a second. Exodus 34. Watch this. Verse number six. And let me give you some context. Here's where this is stepping into. Just a couple chapters before, God had called Moses up to Sinai. God had called Moses and said, hey, come, I want to give you the law. I'm going to write these things. I'm going to be an ordinance for your people. I'm going to make a covenant with these. And so he calls Moses up to the mountain, right? So Moses goes up to the mountain, receives the law. But what happens as Moses is receiving the law? What are the people doing? They're partying with a golden calf, right? This be the God that brought you up out of Egypt. Here is, let me introduce you to Yahweh, and it's this golden calf, right? And so the people of God are totally being wicked, being um, promiscuous. There's a lot of really ridiculous things going on here while Moses is in the mountain getting the law. And what does God say to the people, to Moses regarding the people of Israel? Does anyone know? Does anyone remember? Boom. He says, Moses, you stay here. I'm just going to get rid of them. We'll start over. All right? And what does Moses? Moses comes and he pleads on behalf of the Israelites. And God obviously does what? Shows mercy. And then when we fast forward a couple chapters, God says, okay, Moses, let's try this again. Because Moses goes down there, destroys the tablets as he's destroying this calf. Says, come on, let's let's try this again. Which brings us to chapter number 34. And so he's come, he's brought him back up to the mountain. We see the starting in verse number four. He hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, watch this, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Does that sound familiar? You know what's amazing? Is that if God were not those things, Jonah would never have been born, right? 
If God were not gracious and merciful and slow to anger and full of kindness, Jonah would never have existed. The people of Israel would not have existed as we know them to have. And yet, what is Jonah doing? He starts off chapter 4, he starts off his prayer by throwing God's goodness in his face. How dare you be gracious to them? I, an Israelite, you should be gracious to. Them, a Ninevite? No. That grace isn't for them. That mercy is not for them. That kindness, that goodness, none of those things are for them. How dare you repent of the evil, the calamity that you were going to bring onto these people? What right do you think you have? Jonah brings this to God. What guts Jonah has, right? But how unrepentant Jonah is. What does he even say? Look at verse number three. Let's keep keep walking. Verse number three. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee, I beg you, my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. God, if you're not going to kill them, kill me. Whoa, Jonah, calm, calm down. This is how much spite Jonah has for the people of Nineveh. If you're not going to wipe them out, if you're going to forgive them, I don't even want to serve a God that that's true of. That's his prayer to God. How dare you forgive them? I'm glad you forgave me. I'm glad you forgave my ancestors. I'm glad for all of those things. But if you're going to forgive them, then you know what? I don't want any of it. I'm out. That's Jonah's response to God's forgiveness. How calloused of Jonah. But you understand that forgiveness, true forgiveness, is a difficult thing, is it not? True forgiveness is a, is a hard thing. Because, remember, who is, who is Jonah a stand-in for in the story? We read the story of Jonah, we say, oh, Jonah, how, what a dummy, how could you do those things? Oh, oh, wait, that's me. I'm Jonah. And even as we look around us today, we can look at others and we can say, forgiveness is a difficult thing. Being okay with God showing mercy on our enemies, it's a difficult thing. It can be a very uh, excruciating experience coming to the point of forgiveness. But it's possible. I read a testimony as I was preparing for this message that was so moving, so powerful, I had to share it with you. It's an excerpt from a book. Um, It's called As We Forgive. As We Forgive. And what it is about, it's actually, it's written by a woman whose uh, husband and children were killed in the Rwandan genocide of the mid-1990s. She lost family members that she cared deeply for. Um, If you're not familiar with this, it was a systematic slaughter of the Tutsi people. Over 800,000 Rwandans killed over the period of about 100 days. And what's even maybe most disturbing about all of this taking place is this was not a group of people going around and uh, taking the lives of strangers. Most of this violence was neighbor on neighbor, was people who knew each other. They knew the people whose lives they were taking. All of these things taking place, 800,000 Rwandans over 100 days. One woman in this book, one excerpt, a woman cries out to God, 
And this is what she says. Oh, God, forgive me. Her prayer begins. Oh, God, forgive me. She didn't commit any of these acts. She was a victim. And yet, her her prayer starts, Oh, God, forgive me for dwelling so much on the past for pushing others away and feeling lonely when I didn't have to feel that way. And most of all, forgive me for not thinking of you or what you have given me today. Help me, God, to start living and to start being truly thankful for the ways you are working in my life. What a testimony. What power the author, um, the author also a victim of this genocide, writes this just a couple pages later. The more she had come to understand the significance of the Bible's teachings on Jesus Christ's death, the more forgiveness seemed possible. You know, as we look around at a world around us, uh, forgiveness must be focused, must be centered around the truth of the cross. It must be centered around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jonah, this is so far out of reach for Jonah at this moment. He is so unrepentant. Sure, he's living before the cross, but he knows the promises that God has made. He understands that there's a Messiah that is promised. He understands there's one that is going to come and is going to free his people. He understands that he serves a God who is merciful, slow to anger. He just said it. It was going to be embodied in just a few generations now. But at the same time, Jonah, in his heart, could not find the place to forgive the people. He wasn't even interested in forgiving the people of Nineveh. Instead, he said, I would rather die than forgive them. Let's see how God steps into this. Verse number four. Then said the Lord, dost thou well to be angry? What a question, right? It's almost like God is functioning as like Jonah's therapist here or something. Like, Jonah, is it good for you to, to be angry? That's the question he's asking. Is it good for you to be angry? And what does Jonah answer God? What does he say? Verse number five, what does he say? Nothing! He doesn't even give him time of day. God says, Jonah, is is it good for you to be angry about this? Like, Jonah, stop. Think about this. Is it a good thing for you to be angry about this? And what does Jonah do? What is he doing? How is he behaving? We have, um, I won't name names. It's one of our children that's capable of talking. Um, So 50-50 chance. Uh, One of our daughters especially, uh, when she gets in trouble at home, she just, she doesn't want to talk, like she doesn't want, she'll, and you go like stand in front of her and she's just, she'd, she'd be the kid that would spin in circles all day because she just doesn't want to face you, she doesn't want to talk to you, like when she's upset. And so we have to, what do we have to do? We have to like get in her face, confront her, like, hey, I need you, I need you to talk to me, right? But this is what Jonah's doing. And obviously we know God's not just, okay, all right, you go have your quiet time or whatever. But what does Jonah do? So Jonah, when God says this, I think there's a couple things that are taking place in in this verse. And I'm going to walk you through them. I'm going to show you. So Jonah, what does he do? How How does he respond? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There are mountains on the east side. You can find this today. It's near modern day Mosul. They found the ruins. There's some mountains on the east side of the city. This is where Jonah is likely going. And there made him a booth 
and sat under it in the shadow till he might see, watch this, till he might see what would become of the city. So I think there are a couple things going on here. Um, first of all, Jonah makes the mistake uh, of Jonah makes the mistake of really kind of <laughs> almost playing like showing his hand here. Because what does he say to God? God, just kill me. And then what does he think is going to happen? Number two, he thinks Jonah's he thinks God is like him. Because remember, chapter number two, end of chapter number two, what is Jonah kind of supposed to be doing, right? You read chapter number two and uh, like, oh, Jonah's repenting. Okay. All right, and then you come to chapter number four and you're like, oh, Jonah's repenting of the repenting. But you know what I think is going through Jonah's head here? Is Jonah saying, I'm gonna go see what becomes of the city because when God says, Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? Oh, you know what, God, you're right. The Ninevites could still screw it up or you could understand that they're so wicked they still need to die. So you know what, I'm gonna go watch the show. Jonah, didn't you just say that you wanted to die, but now you want to watch at a safe distance, whatever? He goes out, and what does he do? He says that he might see what becomes of the city. Understand this. He's not going out there to watch paint dry, right? Like, if God's not destroying the city, why is he going to watch what becomes of the city? Jonah thinks someone else here in the story is as wicked and messed up and turned around as he is. Because Jonah, it, everyone does, and everyone repents of the repentance thing. Like, it's a phase you go through, repentance, you know? And so he goes outside of the city, he's like, surely one of these two is going to give in. Either the Ninevites are going to turn, and they're going to be like, you know what, it was so much fun being wicked. You know what, we don't like this righteous thing, you know what, we'll, we'll take our chances with the destruction. Or God will be like, you know what, they really were bad, I forgot about those things. And maybe, just maybe, he really will overthrow the city. And so all of a sudden, we see Jonah assuming that everyone else thinks and behaves like Jonah behaves. We see Jonah assuming that God's like him or assuming that Nineveh. Someone, someone here is going to change their mind. This is not going to have a happy ending. That's what Jonah's thinking. And so he goes out to the city, builds this booth, and then, then, then what happens? Verse number six. The Lord God prepared a gourd. And made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So watch this. This is an anomaly in the book of Jonah here. This next statement. Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Oh, wow. God, you're so good to me. Oh, this gourd. Oh, wow. This is incredible, isn't it? Oh, wow. This thing gives the best shade. That booth. So yesterday, it's ready. Oh, the gourd. This is great. Oh, I love the gourd. Jonah was exceeding glad. That's not a really like a shade that we see on Jonah in the book of Jonah. Jonah's more of like a, no, I'm not going to do it kind of guy, right? I want nothing to do with righteousness. But now the gourd. Oh, man. Oh, this gourd. Why did he love the gourd so much? This is comfort for Jonah. We really haven't seen Jonah happy since maybe, like, the ship that he was sleeping in. I don't know. I mean, maybe, if anything, we don't really read that, that he's, but now he's glad for the gourd. Oh, God, you've given me this gourd. Then what? Verse number seven. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. 
Jonah's finally happy, and what does God send? This worm. Now, whatever this plant was that grew up that Jonah was able to take shade under, now, all of a sudden, this worm comes in, and just in a day and a night, it's gone. Well, this thing was here, and now it's not, right? And watch this. Watch what happens here. Verse number eight. It's going to sound oddly familiar. It came to pass, when the sun did arise, God prepared a vehement east wind. So once again, we see God just preparing all kinds of things to throw at Jonah. We're going to get here, but that's important, okay? I mean, you see, he prepared a worm, he prepared a gourd, he prepared a wind. And that's only in chapter four. That's not to mention he prepared a fish or he sent a wind, okay? Watch this. God prepared vehement east wind. The sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself, again, watch this, to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. This again? This again? Ah, I mean, like, can you imagine this grown man in the middle of the desert? Um, that's just like, there's a, there's a dead, can you imagine walking onto the scene? And there's like an abandoned booth that who knows what he did with it, all right? There's a gourd that's now withered. And there's a grown man who's like dehydrating and like rolling around on the ground. God, I wish you would just kill me. Like, this has to be a scene coming into it. Another one of my children, one that can't speak yet, but I won't tell you which one, um, likes to take, and he likes to, when he gets mad, this is what he does, this is what it reminds me of. When he gets mad, what he does is he likes to take his head, he'll be on, on the, usually on fours, he'll take his head and he'll throw it into the ground. And he's like, oh, you're going like, to concuss yourself or something. He throws it onto the carpet. And then, as if that's not enough, he will crawl across the room with his forehead pressed into the carpet. Like, if you see one of our kids with, like, rug burn on his forehead, you'll know which one I'm talking about. I mean, it's ridiculous. And that's kind of how I'm picturing Jonah here, is Jonah is just... He's, oh, God, how dare you go? He's like, you know, wallowing in the remains of this gourd. And you're like, there's a, what in the world is going on here with this guy? It's better for me to die than to live. But understand this. Understand this. Finally, God has a response out of Jonah. Finally, God's getting a response out of Jonah. Because God doesn't just, like, throw dirt at Jonah and just be like, you know what, forget you. Because you know what we want to do with Jonah? That guy's nuts. I'm out of here. Something bad is about to happen, right? We don't want anything to do with him. But remember who Jonah stands in for. That's us. We don't get what we want. We don't get things don't go our way. We think it should be this way, but it's not. And here's, God has a really powerful message for Jonah right here. Watch what he says as Jonah's rolling around in the dirt, throwing his fits. Verse number nine, God says to Jonah, do you well to be angry? (laughs) Hey, Jonah, how's it going? You doing good? I mean, just picture this grown man throwing a temper tantrum in the desert on the side of a hill with like the stuff around him, and God comes to him again. Does that well to be angry? Hey, Jonah, how's it going? And Jonah's just gotta be like, God, you know how it's going, okay? This is what he says. Verse number nine. Does that well to be angry for the gourd? Hey, Jonah, is it a good thing that you're angry over this plant? And what does Jonah say? I do well to be angry, even unto death. Whoa, guy, calm down. What's he say? Yes, 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 I am justified in my anger for the plant that didn't exist 
24 hours ago. Excuse me? Like, what is happening here? This is God's point. Watch this, verse number 10. Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd. Like, he gives them, he doesn't, like, we don't know exactly what kind of plant this is. We know this isn't like a fancy, some kind of, probably some kind of a weed. It grows up very quickly, all right? We don't know exactly what kind of plant this is. But it's not even like a nice plant. Like, of all the plants, it's not even, God's, it's a gourd, Jonah. Dost thou well to have pity on the gourd? Watch this. For the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. It's like Jonah. Pause. Time out. Yesterday morning, you woke up. The night before, there was no gourd when you went to bed. You woke up and there was a gourd and you were happy. Last night, you went to bed. You woke up. There was no gourd and you want to die? You didn't plant this thing. You didn't water this thing. You had nothing to do with the gourd. How are you so invested in the gourd, Jonah? And yet, it's us. We are so invested in this thing that has no real significance, no real value. We find ourselves wrapped up in the trappings of everyday life, and all of a sudden we get sucked into all of these things that have no real significance or eternal value. But how dare you forgive my enemies? How dare you do good to those people that I don't want you to do good to? But the gourd. You take that thing away from me, oh, now it's on. You take that thing that I didn't know existed 48 hours ago away from me, and oh, we're going to fight. That's what Jonah's doing here to God. How amazing is this? And watch the context. Watch what God does. Finally, he's like, okay, I got to rile out of Jonah. He's responding. Okay, here we go. Watch this, verse 11. Should I not spare Nineveh? That great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle. The end. What a weird book, right? It ends in the King James with the word cattle. Like, if you have another translation, maybe use the word cow. Like, go find trivia. What other book of the Bible ends with cow? I don't think any of them. If I'm wrong, you can find out and let me know, right? Hey, what a weird ending. There's no Jonah said this. There's no response. There's no, like, anything else. It's, listen, you have no mercy on the people of Nineveh who can't tell the difference between their left hand and their right. Oh, yeah, and their cows. <laughs> and it just stops. But here's the point. When we come to passages of Scripture, and you just read this, and you're like, this is so bizarre. It's almost like you're supposed to be paying attention to it. It's almost like you're supposed to ask the question, why did that end like that? All right. Here's, here's why. Here's why. Watch what's going on in these verses. You've had pity on the gourd, which you didn't labor for. You didn't make it to grow. It came up in a night. It perished in a night. And watch this. You were so angry about this gourd. And yet, you want me to spare the gourd? Yet, should I not spare Nineveh? Wherein are more than six score thousand. It's 120,000 people that God is referring to here. As watch this, those who cannot discern between their left hand and their right. All right, what, what's, the, what's the picture going on here? Notice what God doesn't say. I think this is important here as we understand what this passage is. It's important as we look at this to understand what God is, is saying, okay? Does he say that there are 120,000 people who don't understand right from wrong? 
Is that, I mean, is that, is that what it says? Do the Ninevites understand right from wrong? God's sending judgment on them, so there has to be a sense of right and wrong, right? God's not going to be like, oh, I'm going to judge you, even though you can't understand the difference between right. Like, that doesn't make, that's nowhere in line with the character of God, right? So it's not, that, that can't be what he's saying. Besides, as soon as God sent, as soon as Jonah gave his really terrible message, what did the people do? They repented. So therefore, they knew there was something wrong with how they were behaving, okay? We can just work our way through the story, and we can say, yeah, that's not it. What would happen if all of a sudden you forgot your left and right? What, what would happen? That's the word. That's the word. If you didn't know your left from your right, you know what's going to happen? You're lost. How, okay, how are you getting home? You don't know which way is left and which way is right. I mean, you pull up your GPS, and your GPS says, turn right here. You're not getting anywhere. Someone else is taking you anywhere you want to go, right? Why? Because you're lost. You see, here as God is playing this out, Jonah says, yeah, I get that they behave like lost people. You know why? Because they're lost. There are 120,000 people plus in this city who are lost. They don't know where they're going. They don't have any sense of direction. Why are they behaving without justice? Because they're lost. Why are they behaving wickedly? Because they're lost. They don't have a sense of where they're going. Even if they knew where they wanted to get to, they don't know how to get there, Jonah. That's the whole point of you going there. Because I don't want them to be lost. Jonah was supposed to go find these people, and yet what did he do? He tried his best to undermine it. He tried his best because why? He didn't want anything to do with them. He resented them. He hated them so much that he said, I don't care if they don't know you and they're sinning and they're wicked and they're evil. And maybe, just maybe, if they get to know you, they will believe in you and, and you'll transform them. You'll turn their lives upside down. I don't want any of that. Can we just destroy them already? That's what Jonah's doing. And God says, listen, you want me to do that to a group of people who, who don't even know their right hand from their left? Who, they don't know where they're going. You know what another illustration is I think is eerily similar to this? Sheep. Wow, how directionless are sheep. Wow, how, how easy do sheep just wander in and out? And they, they don't, I mean, and Jesus goes and he weeps over Israel and he says, wow, they're like sheep not having a shepherd, right? That, that's Nineveh. That's these people. You know, Paul has a really great expression that kind of uh, ties in here. Such were some of you. As he speaks and as he writes, he say, he's speaking of this church, and he's saying, hey, listen, there's people that are behaving this way. There are people that are blasphemers, and they're this and they're that. Such were some of you. But you know what the amazing thing is within that little verse? Such what? Were some of you. What, what changed? What happened? You see, there was a time in each of our lives when we were not just enemies to each other, not just enemies to other human beings, when we were actually enemies to God. Romans chapter number 5, verse number 10. You can look it up, you can study it on your own. When we were the enemies, that's the word used, enemies of God. How did God respond to his enemies? Destroy them! Fire and brimstone, right? No. Chapter 5, verse number 8 says, what? 
God commanded, demonstrated, right, directed his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, going, rebelling against him, pushing against him, while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. So how does God treat his enemies? He sent a son. The most precious thing that he could possibly have sent. His son, he came, lived perfectly on this wicked and broken and sinful world. Lived perfectly, lived sinless over 30 years in the middle of us. Made himself like us. And yet what happened? Wicked men crucified him. Yet son of God allowed himself to be crucified. Willingly took upon himself the form of a servant, the form of a man. Went to the cross died on your behalf. Understand this. You were God's enemy. You weren't just a misguided good person. You're the enemy of God. And if there's someone sitting here tonight and you say, you know what, you talk about what Jesus has done, you talk about the salvation thing, I don't know a whole lot about that. Understand this. This is what the Bible teaches, is that you are sinful. I am sinful. We are all born with this wicked, terrible, awful disease called sin. That's why Jesus had to come. He came, he died for us, lived perfectly. And the Bible teaches us this. It says that when he died, as he was on that cross, he offered a beautiful exchange, his righteousness for your sinfulness. And you can be made right with God. You can be at peace with God through Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker who died, was buried, but rose again three days later. You know, what's also fascinating is in the book of Jonah, we actually find that picture. Jonah is the sign, he's the only prophet that Jesus actually compares himself to. When the wicked, unbelieving Jews, they say, uh, what sign are you going to give us? He says, the only sign I'm going to give you, sign of the prophet Jonah. I'm going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's the sign of the prophet Jonah? Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the belly of the fish, three days, three nights. So would the son of man, Jesus, be in the earth three days, three nights. But what happened on the third day? He's alive. He's not dead anymore. He gives us the promise of eternal life. And it's amazing. Just think about this. You and I were enemies of God, and now we are called his sons and his daughters. We're called his children. We belong to him. You see, this is how God loves his enemies. But at the same time, where do we find ourselves? There's a little bit of Jonah in me. What happens when God loves not me, but my enemy. Understand this. When we, think, when we think that somehow we are better than our enemies, that God loves us more than our enemies, there's a technical word for this sin, okay? It's called pride. Because understand this. You and I, the same sin that resides in their hearts, resides in mine, resides in yours. And yet, how does God respond to it? You see, as we talk about loving our enemies, I understand uh, you've been hurt. How many of you guys do you say, man, I've been hurt by someone? I've been hurt. We can be honest. I've been hurt by someone. Yeah, yeah, we all have, haven't we? Some worse than others. We've been hurt by others. Uh, how many of you say, someone's done me wrong? Someone's mistreated me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Understand this. Nowhere in the book of Jonah does God say that the Ninevites are just. Look through the book of Jonah. 
What does he call the wicked, the, 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 the wickedites? All right, what does he call the Ninevites? He says great wickedness, right? They have great wickedness, this wicked city. He doesn't say that they're just. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? Oh, they're just, oh, it's so cute, those little Ninevites. Oh, they didn't know that they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people and tortured nameless others. And oh, they, oh man, oh, they don't know what they're doing. That's not what God says. But what does he do? How does he respond? You see, there has to be a place where the, the, the angling, the manipulating, the wrong for wrong, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, there has to be a place where this stops. If you want to study this deeper, I won't take the time to do it tonight. Matthew chapter number five, Jesus gives a teaching. He says, hey, turn the other cheek. He says, you've heard before, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He says, hey, your enemy comes up to you, your enemy strikes you. You know what? You know, you know how you should respond? Give him the other cheek. It's almost, like, it's almost like this is the picture. It's almost like this is the picture. Your enemy comes up to you and he just, he slugs you out of nowhere. Wow, man, you must really be having a bad day. Oh, man, I hope, I hope you feel a little bit better now. You know what? I have another cheek if you want that. What would you do if someone responded to you that way? What is wrong with this guy? What in the world is going on here? You know, another illustration he says, Jesus says, if someone compels you to go with him a mile, go with him too. This picture here, it's a picture of the Roman subjugation going on in Israel this time. A Roman soldier could walk up to, let's say, Matt was a, uh, was a Jewish citizen, and I was a Roman soldier. I could go up to Matt, and I could say, hey, Jew, take my bags, boom, and uh, carry them with me. Let's go. And you know what he could do? Nothing. Me and my buddies, you know what we could legally do? If he says, hey, I'm not going to do that, all right, well, let's fight. Oh, and you happen to die as you were fighting us. Oh, well, let's go find someone else to carry my bags. I'm tired. The end. No repercussions, no. And so you know what Jesus actually says. He says, if someone compels you to go with him a mile, go with him too. So instead of saying, hey, who do you think you are? You know, oh, you know what? Hey, that bag looks heavy. Let me carry that with you. Where, where are you going with this? Hey, I'll just put it down at the doorstep. Oh, man. Hey, you look like you're really tired. I bet I could give you a hand with that. You, what is that? Is that just rolling over and taking it like a victim? No, this is, this is really subversive. This is really out there. This is really different. This is not, not, not hating and fighting your enemies. This is loving your enemies. And so as we step back into the book of Jonah, what do we see? We see Jonah the whole time. How dare God? How dare God? I don't want anything to do with these Ninevites. And what does God do? God says, hey, listen. You just, he points out his sin. He said, you felt bad for a gourd? You felt bad for this plant. You were unwilling to think about hundreds of thousands of people. You want me to just destroy them because you don't like them and their cows. That's what's going on here in the end of this book. And so where does this, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? I want to give you, we're going to wrap up here. I want to give you, I want to give you a challenge. Because here, Jonah failed to really embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. He failed to embody the truth that Jesus wanted him to communicate to the city. Did the city repent anyways? Yes. God can work with or without me. But Jonah missed the blessing. Jonah failed in these respects. And so I want you to understand, I want to walk through this with you, my challenge to you for the week. Uh, and it, part of it comes from a book um, called The Gift of the Enemy. The gift of the enemy. And this is what he says. This is an excerpt from the book. 
The author writes, this is a gift that our enemy may be able to bring us to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. That's our friends. They're our friends precisely because they're able to overlook or ignore those parts of us. The enemy is therefore not just our hurdle to be leapt over on the way to God. Listen carefully. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror our enemies hold up to us. And so here through the story of the book of Jonah, this is a story that there's a mirror held up to us, but you know throughout the story there's a mirror held up to Jonah through the people of the Ninevites. And Jonah doesn't like what he sees. Let me give you a threefold challenge. I hope you'll take this seriously. I hope this is something that you'll, you'll act on and you'll do this week. Number one, you're going to like this one. You're going to like this one. Some of you guys, you're ready for this one. Two and three, you might not care for as much. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a person, a group of people, that when they come to your mind, their name, their affiliation, whatever it may be, when they come to your mind, you just, they frustrate they bring anger. You say, if I have an enemy in the world, this is my enemy. Here's what I want you to do. Number one, I'm giving you permission, okay? Write down the things about them. Write down the character traits that you hate. Go through and list them. Oh, they're so greedy. They're so proud. They're so selfish. And you're like, all right, yes, here we go. Step number two, pray and ask which of those traits you have ever embodied? Which of those things have you ever been guilty of? Ah, it's a good thing they are self-serving. I have never been that way. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, they're so proud. It's a good thing that I have never experienced pride. And finally this, finally this. This is what I want to leave with. We're going to pray and we're done. First of all, repent. Repent, number two, kind of 3B, find a way, find a way to love your enemy. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes hurting people or hurt people. Maybe the person that wounded you is themselves, are themselves wounded. Oftentimes the people that we look at, we say, how could they possibly behave that way? A lot of times there's a, there's a story. There's something that took place in their life. So, you, you know, ask yourself this question and I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but how would Christ demonstrate love to them? Maybe, you know what, maybe they need a word of encouragement. If you look at that person, you say, wow, they are just hard to deal with. Other people probably think that too. They may not experience some of the love and the encouragement and the fulfillment that you experience. But also watch out for this. Just like God was trying to help Jonah understand, you know why these people behave this way? They are lost people. You know what happens oftentimes as Christians? We can look at a lost world and we can say, they're my enemy. They are, they are my enemy. But you know what God looks at and what God sees? God says, they're, they're lost. They're lost. Find a way. Find a way to lovingly, graciously, kindly give the gospel to those people. Because you might think, how can I change them? The fact is, you probably can't. But you know someone who can. And so this is what happens when God loves our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can open up